Yo, yo, how's it going? Hope you're having a good week so far. On today's episode, it's a good one. So I'm warning you, it's a very good one. Tom Brown is an old friend of mine who I used to work for in Ibiza. I used to work recording DJ sets for him and the BBC. I've known Tom for uh, since I was 18, so a long time ago now. Uh, we've had some great times in Ibiza, um, but Tom has also been a huge part of radio in the whole of the UK over the years. So without further ado, Tom Brown, people, enjoy. Tom Brown, we're live. How you doing, mate? Hey, Will. Great to see you, mate. It's been a long time, hasn't it? It I has know, been man. a long time. It's Very been... well, thanks. When was the last time we saw each other? I think it was like... Was it Ibiza or was it Bristol Airport? I can't remember. Uh, no. I... Do you know what, mate? I think it was London. I think I saw you in London because I was living in London at the time and I think I came to meet you at Farringdon Station and we went and uh, had a few beers. That I... would have been about five or six years ago, mate. I can't remember. You were just that. starting to grow the beard. You were um, just starting yeah, that, on the beard because I didn't recognise. That was seven years ago. Oh, mate! <laughs> Am I really seven years older from then? That's yeah. You don't good. look it though. It's this this is the thing with you, Still, Tom. There you go. This is the thing with you. You, I've known you for, I've known you since I was eighteen, I think, and I'm now thirty. So I've known you for a fair amount yep. of time. Um, yeah. And you literally. Ne- you're, you never look a day younger or older. Yeah, you look the same. As That's because I always looked old. I always <laughs> looked old for my age. <laughs> now it's catching up with me. <laughs> oh dear. How's uh how's summer been without without being? In I look Ibiza? like I, I even look like this when I was twenty one. Did you really? <laughs> Sorry, I missed that. Go on. No worries. I think there's a delay in the internet. Oh. It's typical. It's annoying. Um, how's your, uh, how's your summer been not being in Ibiza? Uh, I mean, listen, mate, as you know, this is the first year in 26 that I have not been in Ibiza for the summer. So I've missed it. I mean, there's no question about that. Um, you know, being in, in, you know, in another country at this time of the year feels very, very strange. And um, and obviously with everything that's going on over there as well, I feel for the people that are over there as well. I mean, they're having the most chilled out time. I mean, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. There's there's not a lot of tourists around. Restaurants are still open. Um, the weather is still great as ever. Um, but obviously all the restrictions have completely changed the vibe. So they're kind of experiencing a winter in the summer. Yeah. So it's a bit strange for them too. Um, but you know the hardship side of it is 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 going to be plain. You know a lot of businesses are missing out. The big businesses, the big clubs are going to survive. The yeah. big you know the big parties, the big restaurants, the successful venues will breeze through this and probably see this as just a bit of a year off. Totally. But I think for most people, this is going to be a tough year over there for sure. Yeah, it's such a small island, isn't it? So it's like the big guys will just be fine because they. Let's be honest, we all know how much money they've earned over the years and how successful they've been. Um, but it's, it is, you're right, it's the smaller people. And I think a lot of a lot of it is like, it's like the day-to-day workers that rely on the summer to to kind of keep going for the rest of the year that's kind of going to hit them more hard. Um, but before we get into any of this, like, I think we need to talk about a little bit of how we kind of 
met and how we know each other because no I, there's like ibiza i don't really talk about ibiza that much in my life it was a huge part of my life but not many people know much about my ibiza trip um but so i i got introduced to you by for a friend robin chapel and what were you yep. like you you ran a production company like where did that all come from yeah, I mean, we, the, the thing with Ibiza is, it's because it's it, it, the season is only about four months, four or five months, yeah. really. And so everybody that goes in there for a season will tend to either do one particular thing or they will, you know, they will try and do what I do, which is to try and do as many things <laughs> as you can and just work 24 hours a day and then try and find a few hours at the weekend where you get a bit of sleep and catch up. Yeah. So I was one of those people who used to do several things. And I think at the time I, I met you, I was, uh, I think I was the, I was working at Eden, wasn't I? Which is one of the clubs in San Antonio. And I was um, an events manager there, which was a full-time job in itself. And um, we were looking at with the, I think that particular year we'd taken on Pete Tong. I think yeah, he'd come to San Antonio and we were doing a gig called Wonderland. Yeah. And I was also looking after an event called um, Reclaim the Dance Floor, which was run by the people from Ibiza Rocks, which was all kind of upcoming um, stuff at the time. People like, you know, sort of Chase and Status uh, were headliners all the time. So it was kind of that new sound that was breaking through in 2008, 2009. And also besides that, I was trying to run a lot of aspects of the production of the venue as well and the marketing and all that sort of stuff. But also as a little sideline, I used to, um, because my past is all sort of, you know, in the BBC as an events manager and I started as an engineer. I was a technical studio engineer for a long time at the BBC and I used to record all the the essential mixes in Ibiza. Um, so um, I think at the time I was not just doing essential mix, but I was also doing a lot of other recordings for a lot of other radio stations and clients and stuff like that. And I needed somebody to to help. And and I, I remember speaking to Robin and sort of, you know, because Robin was quite well connected. And I sort of said, I'm, I'm just looking for somebody who, you know, who kind of doesn't mind being in a DJ booth, um, is also going to be prepared to, to work and not party all the time um, because it is work and it's serious work as well. Even though you're in a nightclub and you're kind of in a party environment, there are actually a few of us that, that work. You know, we actually we actually are there yeah. to earn a living and do things properly. So I said, one thing I don't need is is sort of someone who's going to just be there to party and disappear. And he suggested you. So we met, didn't we? I remember meeting you. Yeah. And you were quite young, but you, but you knew a lot about the technical side of stuff as well. And so I thought, yeah, this 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 is going to be good. This is going to be good. So we started working on some recordings, um, and and I think the the one big one that we used to do was Sundays at Space. We used to go down to Space on Sundays for We Love. And because Sunday was kind of technically my day off, I was actually running their podcast. I was doing a podcast for Space. Um, and Sunday was technically my day off. But I took on this because Sunday was a day off and I wasn't doing anything. So I thought, what the hell? I might as well do a podcast as well on Sunday. But there was no way I could do that on my own. And so um, you came in on that and and I, I showed you how to twiddle a few knobs and yeah. set up a few microphones and things like that. And you used to stay there and record some of the sets. And then because you were living next door to me at the time, which was true, um, you used to come back, I think, about nine o'clock in the morning 
and then sort of leave the DSD card under my door or something yeah. or just just hold on to <laughs> it and then and and then when I got out of bed or, or you know got back from the club I'd pick up the SD and put the whole podcast together on Monday afternoons and then by Monday night this this one hour podcast went live and I think at the time it was the number one on the Apple's Apple's iTunes chart because th- there wasn't a lot of people doing music podcasts yeah. at that time and so we were we were you know we were cruising a wave at the time it was it was fantastic and that's how we met. That's how we. That's how we first got together. I never forget. I, I literally those we love Sundays because it was actually my day off as well. So Sunday was my day off from Orange yeah. Corner because I was resident in Orange Corner at the time, and it was like the one day I took off. And yeah, you just spend sixteen hours in a club listening to other people club. But it was literally like some of the best times of my life ever. Like. With especially when you and Jill, Ruth, Ruth, Ruth. How can I forget her name? Sorry, Ruth. Um, yeah, we'd all yeah. we'd, we'd all be in the dressing rooms, and you do. I, that's when I first met Claude von Stroke. Uh, you you did an interview with him. Uh, no, Ruth did an interview with him in the dressing room, and then he forgot his headphones, so he ended up borrowing mine, which was just a, another wild story. Um, but. How so? For people that don't know, we we love space in or we love Sundays in space and Ibiza. How iconic was that as a night? Like, I don't think people. I I don't think there's a night like that anymore. No, there isn't. No, I mean when it when it first started, and then it was just called Space on Sundays because it was it was the same people that ran Space on Sundays that went on to do We Love Space. And in fact, the, the the main guy that was running it was Darren Hughes, and Darren Hughes was the was one of the, along with James Barton, was one of the founders of Cream, yeah, um, in Liverpool back in 1992. And I worked with them back in '92 as well, but that's a, a completely different story. But anyway, here we go. Um, Space on Sundays used to be a 22 hour event, yeah, um, that used to start at six in the morning on a, on a Sunday to kind of capture all the people who were leaving clubs in Ibiza at six o'clock. So rather than sort of just going nowhere, because you know, it's like when you leave a club at six, yes, you, you know, and depending on what sort of night you've had, you can still be up for a bit of a vibe, really. Yeah. You know, it's too early to go to bed. Um, you, you're still kind of, you know, you're quite charged up. So they kind of hit on this idea of starting the, the, the club at 6am, um, which is what they did. And then, and then it would run through, until like say four a.m. Sunday morning, and I can remember um, recording uh, for the BBC. I don't know when it was back in around about two thousand four, two thousand five. Doing the whole twenty-two hours, oh, I did the whole twenty-two hours at space, brutal. and I did that a couple of times. And that was yeah, that was pretty brutal stuff, really. Um, but was fantastic. Yeah. It was it was still great to do it. But we love is is you know, and Sundays at space was just completely iconic within the clubbing calendar for that kind of 90s, early millennium um, sort of generation of clubbers. And it would have, you know, all kinds of people, a little bit, you know, it had six rooms of music, which was the first thing. There were six different, well, they used to call them arenas, but some of the rooms were quite small, only hold about 200 people. But then you had the main discotheque, which would hold, I know, two and a half thousand, three thousand people. You had the terrace that was also around about the same numbers. 
and each arena would have different music. So the discotheque was quite dark, yeah. as you remember, you know, very, very kind of heavy techno sometimes. There are people like, you know, Jeff Mills would play in there. Um, I know Carl Cox did a few before he started doing his own night. Uh, you'd have the Chemical Brothers used to come and yeah. do, you know, one or two sets there. You know, there was, there was you know, the, I think every week they had something like around about 40 DJs playing at this event. Um, so it was it was a huge event and um, and was packed out every week. And the great thing about it was, was that you could go at six in the morning, get the stamp on your wrist and then go off and get some sleep. Yeah. And then come back again in the afternoon or come back in the evening and do the rest of it. So they used to have shifts of crowds that would come in at different times. And um, depending on what time of the day you went, it, you know, the music was completely different. So when it was around about, you know, when when it was that kind of sunset time, you couldn't see sunset from there. It was the wrong side of the island. Yeah. It was on the eastern side of the island. So, But they would still do the sunset terrace, which would go on till midnight. And the sunset terrace tended to be kind of quite funky and a little bit off the wall, you know, in terms of music and who would play there. Um, so, um, you know, musically, it would kind of go right up to a peak, up to about midnight. And then after that finished, they would clear the terrace because you you couldn't do music outside after midnight because yeah. of the licensing laws. And then everybody would pile inside and uh, go into the discotheque and carry on. So this was the you know this was the big event in Ibiza at that time. It was it was absolutely huge. And if you go onto YouTube now or go onto the internet and just put "We Love Sundays at Space," you can still see some of the the, the amazing imagery from that era. Amazing time, literally like. So I'm so happy that I got to kind of experience that because manumission was the kind of similar as well. Um, like, yeah, I- well, manumission used to do a carry on. Um, so, so what would happen is that manumission was on Monday night. Mm. So you'd have wheel of space on Sundays and then you have manumission on Monday. Um, and so between the two sets of promoters, what they tried to do was to try and kind of just corner off, that whole 48 hours. <laughs> so what they would do is get people to go to space on Sundays, of course, and everybody went, yeah. you know, because Ibiza back in the day, and when I say back in the day, I'm not talking that long ago, no, 10, 15 years yeah, ago. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're not going back, you know, to the 80s or 90s or anything like that. But Ibiza was all about the music. Music was all it was. Yeah. It wasn't about VIP culture. It wasn't about celebrities. It, it, it was none of that mm-hmm. back then. That's all changed. You know, it's evolved into that now. So people would go for the music. So they would look for the best musical event. Yeah. And so We Love was was the epitome of that. But then people would also want to go to the the kind of the spectacular, the the, the showtime spectacular of the week yeah. as well, because people would go for seven days. You know, it'd be a seven day holiday, and that was manumission. So what they did was that you know space would finish at six a.m. on Sunday, and people would try and stick it out till six go and get some sleep, go and lie by the pool, go and sit on the beach, go and do whatever you did. And then Monday night was manumission. So that same crowd would go to manumission. And whenever you left space after midnight, back in the days of flyers, you know, back before we had social media, people would be thrusted a flyer as they left space, which was for manumission. And so it'd be like, oh, we've got to go to manumission tomorrow. So manumission would happen. And then when manumission finished at 6 a.m. on Tuesday morning, Space would have a, a carry on, uh, the manumission carry on that would start at 6 a.m. Yeah. So they tried to get from 6 a.m. Sunday to 6 a.m. Tuesday just into those two parties. 
and they were incredibly successful at it as well. It They're was, iconic. It was amazing times. And then Wednesday was a day off. Yeah. Completely. Did you know that I actually, I didn't DJ, but I performed at Manumission. I was one of the, when it, when it moved to Amnesia, I was, oh, yeah, yeah. for one of the nights, I was one of their dancers. <laughs> Yeah, get out of here. Were you really? I wasn't actually. I wasn't because my ex-girlfriend was a dancer then and she was one of their dancers and they needed like, it was so weird. I was, so Manumission, for anybody that didn't know, it was more about, it wasn't really about the music that was playing. It wasn't really about the DJ. It was more about the shows. They would, they would do like sex shows. They would just do very random kind of like, I don't, I don't know what to kind of call it, but it was just very weird. It was theatre. Yeah, it was totally. It was a stage show set to music. Totally. And when somebody would come onto the stage, Mike, Mike and, is it Sarah? Claire. Claire. Mike and Claire um, would kind of introduce them and the music would kind of come down a little bit so everyone can turn around and watch the show whilst it's kind of going on. But they were short of like some workers one night and they asked me to wear some like, sweatpants take my top off and peel carrots in the crowd so i was i was walking around peeling carrots in the crowd and then giving popcorn out as well just kind of the highlight of your abita experience really things you do in it things you do (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's true and the worst i mean there were some weird shows there i mean i i I kind of stopped going to Manumission around the, the around the end of the nineties, believe it or not, because although it did carry on for quite a while after that, to me, because my first year in Ibiza was ninety four, yeah. back when I was young, and 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 I used to go to parties because I wanted to go to the party. Yeah, I mean, eventually Ibiza became all about work. Yeah. And, you know, you you wouldn't go to a party on your night off. No. You'd sit in with a DVD and a takeaway pizza. <laughs> That's how you did a night off in yeah, Ibiza yeah, yeah. when you were a worker. You know, you just didn't go out. Um, but I remember some of the parties from the, the 90s and and they were just, you know, I mean, Privilege is this enormous hangar of a club anyway. It's not really a nightclub. It was just a space mm-hmm. uh, that used to be open air that they had to put a roof on when all the new sound regulations came in. So it was just a massive, massive area with a pool, with a full-size <laughs> pool in the middle of it. And trees growing everywhere as well, you know. I mean, it was just, it was just a, you know, a, a, an experience of a night that you couldn't get anywhere else in the world at that time. And so, you know, when they started doing these kind of spectacular shows as well, it was just an experience that you couldn't miss. And they also opened up their own hotel uh, called the Manumission Hotel as well, which I think was around about 97, 98, which was where, you know, people would go after the show, you know, people who'd been invited. And that that was a whole sort of new experience, you know, just a, a different level. Because by the time you got to the Manumission show, you'd been, you know, doing kind of whatever substance <laughs> or alcohol or whatever the hell you'd been into. And you turned up at this hotel, which was in the middle of nowhere. Um, and And then, you know, you'd stay there till... 10, 11, 12, 1 o'clock the following morning, get back to wherever you were living and think, what the hell did I just do for the last 24 hours? Yeah, It was a real out-of-body experience, the whole thing. Yeah, I've heard some stories from from those times and you're just like, you wouldn't be able to get away with it nowadays, I don't think. No, definitely not. No, I mean, just on so many levels, you know, um, so, you know, <laughs> I, the the kind of, um, well, I, I can't really go into too much no. about it on a podcast. <laughs> 
facts, but you know, so many levels it was wrong. Yeah. But it was right at the same time. It's it's strange how times change, isn't it? As well, and how I, I wouldn't, I don't want to say corporate, but how kind of things change. Because even when I first started going to Ibiza, you'd always get the back in the day people that'd be like, back in the day we used to do this, and back in the day we used to do that. Even like when I became resident in Kenya, like. The guy, the residents before me were like, yeah, years ago, this was like the place to go. This was this was like the Cafe Mambo of the time um, mm-hmm. and everyone would party there. But things change and kind of people people move on, I guess. And I guess it's <sighs> there comes a point when money gets involved and people were like, OK, we can really make money out of this. And it kind of yeah. takes it away from from what it originally was because with with what what happened with uh we love sundays like was it just came to an end can't really remember um i i think i think ultimately it, it, it just the whole vibe of the island sort of changed yeah it did and, and like a lot of things that happen in you know entertainment and you know the the, the kind of showbiz industry is that everything has its day everything mm. has its peak totally and the great thing about, you know, entertainment and, you know, everything from movies to theatre to, you know, the, 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 you know, what they call the nighttime industry now yeah. is, is very much um, constantly evolving. And so nothing really stays the same. So things, things peak out. So it kind of goes up, reaches its peak, and then it, it kind of comes down yeah. and other things take over. And I think ultimately with, with We Love and with space in general, it was actually the, the, the termination of the, of the lease at the club. Yeah. Everybody knew that space was going to go. Every, everybody knew that it was going to change. But the music changed as well. We Love had a philosophy for many years that they wouldn't introduce a VIP area. Yeah. You know, their, their philosophy was, was that, you know, music and, and, you know, what they did was for everybody. You know, it should be no segregation. But in the last, I think the last year or the last two years, even they introduced a VIP area because of pressure from the club. Yeah. And I think that all started to kill it. But the other thing, of course, was was that other events were starting as well. You had this new kid on the blog um, just opposite yeah. called Ushwire, which was a daytime party venue. And what happened with Ibiza is that over a period of, I'd say, probably about five years, is that everything went from being inside at nighttime to going outside yeah. during the daytime. And that's why we used to talk about the Instagram generation, the influence that social media had on clubbing was enormous. Yeah. You know, people like me who were working there and could see it happening, what we could see was that the, the amount of people going to clubs at night was diminishing. Yeah. And the people going to daytime parties and villa parties and things that were a bit smaller and more exclusive was increasing. Yeah, People wanted to take pictures of themselves um, stood by a pool with a bottle of champagne or with a bottle of vodka with their friends um, in the daytime, looking great, looking, looking, you know, um, looking toned or just looking like they're enjoying themselves. When you take a picture in the nightclub, you're probably <laughs> taking a picture of you looking your worst ever, you know. Two, two pills in, gurning away, it's right. game over, yeah. yeah. And those pictures are great when they're private yeah. and shared between your friends. But when they start going around, it, it, it sort of just had a, I think it had the effect that people would sort of say, well, we've done that. Yeah. 
we've done the nightclubs. We want to do something new now because it, you know, even, even social media and Instagram and Twitter and TikTok now, all these things, they, they constantly evolve, yeah. but they evolve at a far, far quicker rate than, than anything previously. So once you've done your nightclub, you want to go and do something else. Yeah. So with Sundays, it basically, it, it, in the end, it became a competition between things like We Love and Avicii. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, the, the, the EDM side of things, you know, that, that well, I, I say EDM. It was, it was what people started to call this new sound yeah. that people like Swedish House Mafia had been developing. This, this kind of, you know, some call it cheesy. Some people call it more commercial. I mean, to be honest, I liked a lot of it, but it yeah. was a different sound. And it worked better in a spectacular setting, yeah. something with lots of pyrotechnics, something with a big presence, and it worked better in the daytime. Yeah. And so what started to happen was that people started to shun the whole kind of drugs, um, doing 22 hours in a nightclub, all that sort of stuff, in favour of champagne, in favour of VIP tables, in favour of star spotting, in favour of, you know, this is where the celebrities hang out. That all started to happen around about 2012, 2013, yeah. and then evolved into where we are now. So it, it was it was kind of a natural termination. There was nothing that really said, you know, we've got to stop. Yeah. It was just that they had their day. It lasted 10 years. It was a great decade at the top, yeah. and, and things moved on. No, definitely. And th change is good. I think Ushuaia did completely change the game in Ibiza. Definitely. Just... Just yeah, how definitely. like how they kind of amalgamated a extremely high end hotel with an amazing venue day party, and there was just something about it. I think their branding with with the ants party as well kind of made things extreme. Like I remember when ants first came out, and it was everywhere. Like you couldn't mm. get away from. They were everywhere. Um, and I think what they did was they just built this amazing venue. Did they have the like massive stage to start with? Yeah. I mean, I, I worked with Ushuai very closely yeah. when they first started. Um, I was, I was one of the first consultants to work there, yeah. um, to set things up. And in fact, they, they offered me a job there, but as, as you and I know, after, after many years in this industry, your hearing starts to get a little bit screwed up and I didn't want any more work at the front line yeah. at, at that point, I was starting to sort of think I need to kind of look after my health a little bit because yeah. I was from the generation of people who used to go and stand by the speaker, <laughs> you know, for hours on end, you know, nowadays people wear earplugs in DJ. Yeah. And think, well, you know, we just didn't do that. And so I, I got fairly conscious of having to make sure that, you know, things didn't go wrong. But what Ashwai did, I remember their first, their first big event, um, was with uh, David Morales. Yeah. Um, was with Usher, um, and was Idris Elba. Yeah. Idris Elba, who um, had been a DJ before he was famous in South London, uh, was starting to sort of DJ professionally. Yeah. And the management company that set up this this first event, Idris was one of their first signings. Okay. And at that time, this was about 2011, 2012. He was only known for the Wire. At yeah. that point, you know, his career hadn't gone stratospheric. And I even remember, you know, the, the guy from the management company saying, the first on's going to be this guy called Idris Elba. And I was like, who? who, who you know, who's yeah. that? <laughs> who's that? And they, and they were saying, you know, did you ever watch The Wire? I was like, nah, I've never seen you know, it. I was one of those people, like many, who didn't watch The Wire until about 10 years after it was made. I still know? haven't it's, watched it. 
Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's great. It's fantastic. So anyway, we did this, um, we did this event and I remember going to Oshuai for the first time. They, they, the venue had been open for about two weeks and this was their first big event and it was Oshuai and David Getter. And do you remember they did that track, um, without you, it was called without you, wasn't it? Who did that? Without you, without you. Ashwai was the singer on it. Oh, and David yeah, yeah, yeah. The producer. It- I mean, you know, it was a very commercial track. Yeah. But this was the first performance of it. And I remember going to Ashwai and they had this big stage. And and it had um, like a, a the set was made up of, um, you know, if you go into a bedroom and a bathroom and there's, a, there's like a, a, a sort of a, a bathtub. Yeah. Um, I remember it. I remember You know, this. a sort of. You know, not not attached to the wall, but sort of one of, I can't remember what they're called, but like a U-shaped bathtub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was in the centre of the stage, and this was their DJ booth. And I remember looking at it going, you've got to get rid of that. I mean, that's ridiculous. And they're going, oh, we've spent a fortune on it. I was going, no, no, you can't have DJs, um, you know, sort of DJing from a bathtub on a stage. And the reason they put it in was because, you know, it was a hotel. Yeah. And I think at that point, they hadn't realised quite how spectacular that venue could be yeah so we took the bathtub up and brought in a whole load of extra staging and turned it into a stage and i can remember the guys there thinking we need to move in a different direction here and sort of you know and make this sort of much more of a venue with a hotel rather than a hotel with a venue um and and there it it really moved on but the the great advantage that ashwai had apart from the fact that everybody there was so professional because in Ibiza you work with a lot of people who are not professional yeah you know they might turn up they might not yeah so if you're trying to run a gig and you want a driver to pick up a DJ or you want a sound technician to operate the panel or you want an electrician to switch everything on you're never guaranteed they were going to turn up (laughs) this was back in the day so it was it was a nightmare of a place to work yeah that's why it was the first professional venue where everybody kind of turned up on time, um, everybody um, had a, a standard that was kind of you know proper gig event standard. So these guys kind of knew what they were doing, and the other thing was they had a lot of money. Yeah. They had a pot of money and investment, and when you've got all those things nicely combined, you've got the money, you've got the staff, and you've got the vision. Yeah, then you know it's going to happen. And we, they changed the face of clubbing for sure. They did massively, and they still are. The moment, to be fair, yeah. And then obviously they bought High a couple of years ago, and or they bought Space and turned yeah. it into High, which is an amazing club. Um, was it an Ushwire party or was it an Eden party? I remember calling you one day, and I was like, "How's your day going, mate?" And he's like, "Oh, mate, trying to explain that you can't get." you can't spray champagne over fucking decks is an absolute <laughs> nightmare to, to a load of tour managers and i'm just like who the hell are you dealing with that night i don't know we we i remember we'd always talk about like dj riders at yeah. the time and i think you were doing a party at eden was it the, was it the ibiza rocks one where people was it was it steve aoki yeah. Yeah, was it yeah, Steve it Aoki when Steve Aoki, when he came um, when he first got big and he wanted yeah. he wanted to like spray champagne over yeah. everyone, get a load of cake and throw it into the crowd and and your I remember inflatables, inflatable dinghies. That was I remember it. inflatable dinghies and stuff like this, you know. And uh, you know, it was all part of the act. You know, I get it. I completely understand 
why you know people want these things you know they have a vision and whether it's stupid or not you have to try and help sort of put this vision together or at least say that's not a good idea in this venue you really shouldn't do it and i yeah i do remember at that party you know it was called reclaim the dance floor i mentioned it earlier and it was it was one of these things where you know they were kind of ahead of their time but but i you know they, they you know, in some cases, I mean, Steve Ioki, believe it or not, at that time was the was the six a.m. DJ, yeah, and the was, club yeah. closed at six thirty. Yeah, you know, he was very, very low down the batting order at that time, and so you know, my job as a you know as an event manager is is to always try and help the headliners, yeah, and then try and help the number twos, and then try and help the number three, and then you kind of think. I'm going to run out of money now. I can't really do much. So here was this guy who was booked to come on at 6am for 30 minutes, wanted to spray champagne, wanted, you know, dinghies so he could float over the crowd. And I was trying to say to his tour manager, you'll have about a hundred people in the venue at 6am. You know, most people will have gone home. You can't do it. And he's like, no, nah, no, nah, it's very important. You know, we, we need to do it. So I get it. I totally understand why they want to do it. But yeah, it, you know, sometimes you, you do end up in these situations where the vision of the artist just doesn't mix with the venue. Yeah, you know, if they're doing a festival, totally get it, yeah, totally yeah. understand it, because there's a crowd there ready to watch somebody else. But if you're at the end of the night in Ibiza, particularly where everybody does get exhausted by the time you get to four yeah. or five o'clock in the morning, because they've been up all day as well, yeah. and they're on a seven-day holiday. And, you know, or they were back then and people just get tired, yeah, you know, yeah. so, so yeah, you can do it. But I mean, the, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, just, just going back to sort of, you know, nightmare riders and things like that <laughs> back in 2009, part of Pete Tong's night, we put on Lady Gaga. We yeah. had Lady Gaga for the night, which was that. an incredible coup to do this. And, um, and I, you know, I, I spoke to their tour people and, um, and, and they had, they were quite easy to work with, but they had one specific requirement, which was a dry ice machine uh, for when for when she started the show. <laughs> this fucking dry ice machine. This dry, dry ice machine. machine. Literally. Oh, we we lost Tom. We're back recording. So dry ice machine. I literally remember this. I remember this. You trying to find a dry ice machine on Ibiza. Can you hear me? Yeah, that's right, and you know, and 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 this was this this is a real crucial part of their performance. You know, they they wouldn't start or they wouldn't do it without the dry ice machine. And when you're on an island like Ibiza, if you need something for a production, it's not like you can just call a hire company, yeah. you know, down the road and say we need to hire something. You you kind of you know something like that. You have to physically get it to the island if there isn't one on the island. Anyway, long story short, we found that amnesia unbelievably had a dry ice machine that was that, that they'd not used for about five years um, and was in storage at Amnesia. So I managed to get a crew of people to go down to Amnesia, put it in the back of a pickup truck and bring it over. And like I say, I mean, Lady Gaga's people were, you know, were like, it's not going ahead unless we've got this dry ice machine. And they, they, they were a hundred percent, they weren't bluffing. And, you know, there was, the, I think, Eden had sold like 5,000 tickets. Yeah. So, you know, and, and I'm, I'm telling you, this was like about six o'clock in the afternoon of the <laughs> evening of the gig. So then we we got the dry ice machine there, got it into the club. And these things are heavy. You know, it takes four people to lift these things. So the crew got it in. 
And then the, you know, I was telling you before about how Ibiza can be quite flaky. The electrician at the club refused to come in and connect it because he, he hadn't been told about it. He was the worst. He and never turned up. That, no, that's that, right. No, that guy I, never and, turned um, up. <laughs> and, I, and I can remember having to get the owner of the venue, having to sort of, you know, go around to his house, which was at the back of the venue, banging on the gates because he wouldn't let him in. And this was 11.30 now. Um, and the club was opening at midnight. Um, and, and and in the end, the owner got him to come in. I, I, think, I think he threatened to kill him or so. I think it was really that <laughs> quite serious, you know. And uh, they got it connected. But I remember when the gig happened, the, the, the three-phase cabling uh, to power the thing was still in the club so that there was no time to kind of reroute the cable or anything like that. So I had to get two or three security guys to kind of stand by this cable and make sure nobody tripped over it. It was just an absolute nightmare. And that was one of the things about Ibiza back in the day. Um, and as, like I say, back in the day, 10 years, not that long yeah. ago, that, that could have been really difficult. And goes back to why Ushuaia was a turning point because it, it wasn't just, you know, the, the concept of the venue it was the professionalism of the staff as well that really raised the bar. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause James, James Dutton, he, he works for them or started working for them, didn't he? Um, and kind of worked for the whole. Yes. Thing. Is that. Is yeah, that's right. Well, James, well, James became sort of your sort of replacement. I think yeah, James, did, I think yeah. sort of worked with me the year after. And I, and I had James work with me on a few gigs uh, for the BBC yeah. and also at Oshwire as well. And I remember when Oshwire asked me about sort of, you know, going to work for them full time, I, and, you know, and I, I've already recounted the story. I didn't want to do it. They were looking for people. And I said, you should talk to James because James is this young producer guy who's pretty technically yeah, savvy as well. Yeah. And you should get him on board, you know. Um, and I think. I don't know if it was that year, but certainly the year after they got him on board as well, which was a smart move for them. Good yeah, move for James as well. Definitely. So let's uh, let's talk about the BBC. Um, where did it all start? BBC. Well, I mean, I, I I started with the BBC as I mentioned earlier as a as a, an engineer, technical engineer. So you know, with a soldering iron and, and components and stripping things down and stuff like that. But I realised after a couple of years, it wasn't really what I wanted to do. I wanted to be producer i wanted to work in music and stuff so i i tried desperately to get myself over to the to the more producing side yeah. but what i found after a while was that having the technical knowledge as well was really useful and it and it pushed me in the direction of doing events and outside broadcasts because they are very technically demanding because it's not like walking into a studio where you switch the button on and everything works yeah. with an outside broadcast or a or an event, you are basically building a broadcast studio facility in some of the most difficult circumstances, which is where you really need to have that kind of technical nous as well. Yeah. So when you're producing those events, having some degree of technical knowledge really helps you um, and means that you you know whether an event is really viable or not. Yeah. So I kind of moved into doing events with the BBC. Um, and I used to do um, events around London to start with. Um, and they were they were quite big events. They used to be called Soul Night Out. I'm going back to the 80s now, and um, and we would do um, 2,000 capacity venues, turn them into a, um, a you know a broadcast event, and um, and broadcast them on the radio station, which was the, the local radio station for London. So so from there, I kind of moved into doing 
events full time. And then after that, um, I work with Kiss. We'll come back to Kiss because we're talking BBC. And at the end of the 90s, I went back to the BBC and started working on a thing called the uh, Radio 1 Dance Party, which is where they used to take their old uh, BBC One roadshow. They used to have this thing called the Radio 1 Roadshow that used to kind of go around the country in caravans, basically, and and set up in parks and um, town centres and do a show to maybe three or 4,000 people. In the nineties, they had these big articulated lorries, which really were fantastic with, with sort of like fold out stages um, and stuff like that. But they were still a bit, a kind of bit, what colloquial, you know, uh, parochial is the word I'm looking for. They were still a bit small and they were targeting sort of, you know, daytime listeners. Yeah. Well, myself and uh, a guy called Dave Pierce, who uh, I worked with for a lot of years with Dave, we put this proposal to the BBC to turn it into a Friday night dance party. Yeah. So when the the the, the roadshow used to run Monday to Friday, so we would do um, Monday to Friday doing the the lunchtime Radio One show, but we sort of said on Friday night, why don't you do something for your kind of clubby listeners because club music at the end of the 90s was starting to become yeah. mainstream chart music why don't you do something on friday nights for your for your club audience which is which is also your target audience but you're not doing anything for them so the bbc were quite hesitant because you know the bbc being the bbc were all about oh <laughs> aren't people going to take drugs and all that sort of stuff and like no 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 people won't do anything like that you know most of the people that come to a friday night event will be university students or you know or people who've finished for the weekend yeah you know this can be kind of like you know your weekend starts here you know friday night big friday night hour. so we persuaded them be a good idea um so what we had to do was to was to basically completely rebrand the roadshow on a friday night so same stage same vehicles but we used to hire in a big sound system and some lights and a bit of um staging to go on there as well and basically turn it into a, a proper pumping um uh, event you know yeah. like a like a like a, a proper stage show and, and the first one we did was in Bournemouth on the beach in Bournemouth back in 96 and I can re- I can remember setting it up and it was phenomenally successful probably around about 10 15,000 people Jeez. came they were all lined up along the pier which was yeah. overlooking where we were on the beach and it was it was amazing. I, th- I think we had Tall Paul and maybe Seb Fontaine, maybe Judge Jules playing, and these were all big, huge yeah, DJs huge at the then, time. Yeah. And at the end of the night, we thought it had gone great. We used to do an after party, so so me and Dave would leave the venue as soon as it was all finished and go to the after party. Anyway, it turned out that night that um, a lot of students had sort of decided that because it had gone a bit cold they were going to break up a few deck chairs and, and light little bonfires on the beach to get warm. The police completely misinterpreted this as being a bit of a riot going on. And they all turned up in their riot gear and stuff like that. And I remember getting a, cause I was the, the, the onsite sort of production manager. I remember getting a, a phone call around 6am in the morning. I was driving back to London at 6am. Um, and I got a phone call from the duty office at BBC saying, um, there the are reports going out on a local radio station called 2CR, which was like the commercial radio station for Bournemouth, saying there was a big riot in Bournemouth last night following a BBC event. 
And I was like, there's no riot. It was, <laughs> you know, there was a lot of people, but there was no riot. And anyway, eventually it turned out that it was the students had made a couple of deck chairs. So the gig almost got cancelled after its first one. But anyway, we we managed to persuade the bosses at Radio 1 that it wasn't a riot. They they accepted it wasn't. It was an overreaction. And it carried on. And I remember some of those events. There was one we did at Brighton with Paul Oakenfold. There was a, they estimated 50,000 people on the beach. I mean, Jeez. these were huge events. All free. Yeah. But they were massive. And so from there, I started to work a bit more with the BBC and Ibiza. Um, having been involved in their first broadcast, which was in 95, um, I kind of got re-engaged with them. And so from there, because I was based in Ibiza every year, I used to live in Ibiza, um, the BBC used to use me as their their person in Ibiza because I understand I understood the way the BBC works, which is quite unique yeah. in the way that they work with broadcasts and, you know, everything from health and safety um, to, you know, production standards to, you know, um, um, you know, making sure that uh, the experience is good for their listeners and all that sort of stuff. So they needed somebody that got all that but could still work with the Ibiza club um, uh, community, which didn't get all that. You yeah, know, they yeah. wouldn't understand all that side yeah. of it. So that's kind of how I got involved with the BBC and, and stuck with them right through until present day. So when did you first start doing the Ibiza, the BBC in Ibiza, Mambo? Because was Mambo the first place they would do their shows from? Or was there like well, another the f- venue? Yeah. The first one was in 95, which was actually at Cafe Del Mar. Yeah. Uh, next door, next believe door. it or not. And one of the reasons that Mambo uh, got involved, I'll, I'll try and shorten this story a little bit, but I, but I, I, it's relevant to the question. But the first broadcast off the island, off the island of Ibiza, was in 1994 with Kiss, Kiss yeah. FM, which was a commercial London station. And... Because they could get advertising and stuff, they, they I can still remember the the advertiser was uh, Brute Brute Aquatonic, okay. uh, which was like a a splash splash on uh, body scent for men. Yeah, I've never and, heard of and it. They, and they, yeah, <laughs> it was like they they wanted to sort of get into Ibiza. They saw the Ibiza crowd as very much their target marketing crowd, so they put a lot of money into trying to get uh, a live show from Ibiza. And this was back before, you know, the, you know, the internet, the internet was around, but it was geeky people that were using the internet. You know, it was, it was tiny and it certainly wasn't fast as it was now. So getting a signal for a radio broadcast out of Ibiza was only possible by satellite. So it was was kind of expensive to do it. And, um, and I was working with, kiss then on all their events and concerts so what we did we 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 shipped over um, um a satellite system but we also took 500 listeners with us as well because we were a bit sort of concerned about crowds and we decided that it would be a good idea to take out 500 listeners as well as part of a kiss and ibiza holiday yeah very very ambitious project for for the time you know time it was and we put a load of planning into this thing to make it happen and, a, and what we were going to do was to do it from a beach in the south of the island called Salinas, Salinas Beach, yeah. and, a, and a, a, a little beach hut called El Chiringuito. These places now are, are famous. Yeah, you know, they, they are, are yeah. they are famous venues. But back then, it was literally a beach hut. Okay. You know, with a, with a lovely beach in front of it. We did all these things. We had to liaise with the um, with like the the aerospace people, 
because it was very close to the airport. We're yeah. using a satellite. They didn't want, you know, planes to have their signals interfered with. So massive amount of planning. And and the idea was to take 500 listeners down to this uh, beach venue on a Friday, on a day that they weren't busy because they only got busy on Saturdays. Yeah. Um, and, um, and make this show happen. So long story short, Thursday night, we had this September rain which we never knew about. In September, a that goes from summer into the rainy season. And the rain can be tropical. It can be absolutely torrential. So Thursday night, the day before the broadcast, we had this torrential storm and it was going to carry on into Friday. Friday was written off. So we were left with a situation with all this planning, all this money put into it, um, a, a beach that we couldn't use, um, and a three-hour lunchtime show just 12 hours away from us. Uh, and we were sat in Cafe Mambo. We were discussing it in Cafe Mambo because all the kiss, um, you know, all the all the bigwigs were out. Yeah. And they were basically pointing at me and saying, what can we do? What can we do? You know, th- there's got to be a solution. And I'm like, oh, I, I can't, you know, I'm good, but I can't change the weather. <laughs> you know, there's nothing I can do about the weather. Yeah. So we will have to we will have to change the venue, and so they're like, well, okay, all right, we'll change the venue. Let's change the venue. Let's make a decision. And because I'd been eating at Cafe Mambo all week, my hotel was just around the corner. I'd got to know the owner Javier quite well. Yeah. Um, and I I went to see Javier and sort of said, I'm looking for a venue uh, to do a live radio show tomorrow. I can't really think of anywhere. You've got a great venue here. You've got an outside terrace that's got covers on it can we do it in your DJ booth tomorrow? I think we can make it work. And I had to get the satellite crew to come down, check the signal was going to work and all that sort of stuff yeah. on, on the Thursday night. And it did. So the first ever show basically came from Mambo because of a, a, a thunderstorm. And, and that's why Mambo got the reputation of being the host venue. But when Radio 1 came out in 95, they didn't want to do it from the same venue as KISS. Because Kiss and Radio One were big, big rivals yeah, back yeah. then, um, and so they decided to do Next Door Cafe Del Mar, which had more of a history yeah. than Mambo, because Mambo only opened in '94. So, so I started working with them uh, back then. Radio One then started to use venues all over, yeah. all over the island, and and they did avoid Cafe Mambo for quite a while because Kiss came back year after year to do stuff from Mambo. But eventually, in the late nineties, Radio One did a show from from Cafe Mambo because Kiss had stopped going to Mambo, and then they started talking about having a facility there. Yeah. And then the studio was made. Um, it was it was basically built on a couple of tables. To start, I wasn't involved at that stage. I was doing other stuff then. And then in I think two thousand and three, a proper radio studio was installed at Cafe Mambo. Um, and I used to do. I used to be a presenter in Australia. I was living in Australia at the time in the in the the winter, the European winter. And I used that studio to do my show. Yeah, uh, because I knew Javier quite well, obviously. And and the guy that was running the studio at that time decided he'd had enough. He was going back to the UK, so the studio had no studio manager. So I spoke to Javier and sort of said, I could do this part time. You know, because the studio's not in use all the time. Yeah. I know what I'm doing in a radio studio. Why, why don't I take over the studio? And then I started working with Radio One to come in more to the studio, and and that's kind of where it all grew from. 
That's amazing, man. Because you've been in radio for years, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Like, you, you sound like I'm a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> like when you were at Radio London, was it Radio London before it was the BBC? Yeah, no, it was the BBC. Um, it was it was like the BBC have a, a load of local radio stations yeah. all over the UK, and they have one in London, believe it or not. And so, um, although my career started at Broadcasting House, which is where all the networks come from and the, the main HQ, um, I I wanted to move to Radio London. One, yeah. because it was a pay rise. And secondly, because as an engineer, if I wanted to get into programming, my chances of doing that in the big corporate HQ was yeah. zero. But if I moved to a smaller, leaner operation where people were kind of multitasking and doing lots of other things, then my chances of doing it were, were much greater. So I, I tried very hard to make that move. And it was it, a lot of people wanted to do that. You had to sit interviews and, you know, go through board processes to get the job. But anyway, eventually I managed to get the job. So, yeah, Radio London. And that was that was like, you know, in the mid 80s. So was so that was, was that time. was Pete Tong at Radio London then? Pete Tong was at Radio London for around about nine months or a year, something like that. Um, this was 1987. Yeah. I I went from being an engineer to a producer to a program manager, and I was given a strand of programs to look after, which was at nighttime. Yeah. Uh, and we branded it. It was called Night FM. And it was, um, it was an operation that was a bit naughty in the BBC, to be perfectly honest, because it was a commercial operation. Yeah. But it was a very sneaky, very quiet commercial operation that was within – the guidelines of the BBC, but not in the spirit of the, yeah, yeah. you know, the BBC charter really. And what we were doing was that because we, we, we'd seen a growth as, as music people, we'd seen a growth in people wanting to go to venues and go to entertainment yeah. and not just listen to the radio through the soul night out, which I mentioned earlier, we knew that although our audience ratings using the book, you know, when, when you do audience surveys was not that huge, we had a massive following of people who listened to Radio London for the specialist music. You know, we were paying, playing soul, jazz funk, what was called black music at the time, believe yeah. it or not. Um, uh, we were playing acid jazz. We were playing um, kind of, you know, new bands, yeah. you know, London bands and stuff when London was the real epicenter of live music. We were playing all that stuff. Radio One was playing kind of commercial chart music, yeah. which, you know, is what they were there to do. But they were avoiding a lot of other music too, which we were playing. And if you if you kind of think back, you weren't alive. What am I saying? Think back. <laughs> but if you look back at the history of that time, around the mid-'80s, um, electronic music started yeah. to, to cut through and and black music as it was called started to cut through yeah. so you had artists like um loose ends luther vandross phyllis nelson paul hardcastle yeah um who were all breaking through radio one was not playing these artists but radio london was and so we were breaking this music we were absolutely breaking this music through so we developed this this particular niche of music that also had a very good live element with it too so the commercial operation that we hit upon was that we could put on events and the revenue that we would generate from the events would fund the specialist strands of music that we were doing yeah. because the funding wasn't coming 
from the BBC internally. Okay. So although it was it was legitimate in its way, it it wasn't because we weren't taking advertising. Yeah. We weren't doing anything commercial. We were, if you like, marketing our own events. Yeah, yeah. And then the thing that was a little bit dodgy is that we were putting up the risk money to put the event on. Okay. And you shouldn't really be doing that with with money that's there to make programs. That was that was the risky element of yeah. it. Interestingly now, that's what they're looking at as the future of the BBC. Yeah, yeah, so we definitely. were just way ahead of our time. That's <laughs> always been of, ahead. That's how it was. So and so we started putting on events. So so my job was to look for people who could not only do a radio show, but could also do an event. Yeah. So um we had a Friday night slot that was really gonna be based around house music, which was kind of starting because of Chicago. Yeah. And, you know, those early days of Chicago house. Um, and and Pete was one of the main people. Pete was working for London Records. Mm-hmm. I got to know Pete through a guy called um, Jeff Young. And Jeff was also at London. He was a music guy, but he used, he used to do um, uh, a fill-in show for a guy called Robbie Vincent. Now, Robbie Vincent was a phone-in host, okay. but he also had this great knowledge of jazz funk jazz funk music so he used to do a saturday show on radio london uh, for about two hours that had a massive massive following and so through this kind of london soul connection it was called the london soul mafia back in the yeah. day we we found pete and pete was on a, a kent radio station called medway so i approached his management and sort of said we're looking at doing this strand It'd be great if pete could get involved and so Pete came to the BBC. That was his first time at the BBC back in 87. We also signed Giles Peterson back then as well. Giles I got to know through a record label called Street Sounds. Giles was compiling these albums called Acid Jazz. And so um, he, was, he was perfect because what both Pete was doing and what Giles were doing translated into DJ-led events. Yeah, yeah. And so, so for me, as a manager... Putting on a DJ was a lot cheaper than putting on a band. Definitely. And that's kind of how it started. Yeah. You know, that, you know, I, I could put on an event then, get these guys to, to front it. They would book the guests as well. And, and we have, you know, um, people coming to the event without all the hassle of trying to put on live performances. Yeah. So that's how Pete got involved. He stayed for about nine or 10 months and then went to a rival station in London called Capital. And I kind of totally understand why he did that because Capital was the big commercial station, yeah. a lot of funding, higher profile and stuff. But yeah, Pete was with us. Pete was involved. And we did, um, you know, I mean, some of the the music that we played at that time was so cutting edge and way ahead of its time. You know, that was the, the kind of David Morales, Frankie Knuckles era, yeah. you know, that it was, it was fresh music coming straight out of Chicago that we were bringing to London. And that's kind of how the London acid house, acid jazz scene started. We were using, you know, a lot of the DJs around London that, that were playing that music then. So Nicky Holloway, what Nicky was doing then. It was it was a great era, fantastic era. It's wild to Way think. Ahead of it. It's it's really wild to think, is like to think that you like what does it feel like knowing that you were literally there at the beginning of what radio is now? Yeah, well, it's, when you're living it, you don't realise. No, you don't. You know, yeah, we were all 
we were all young, you know. I mean, you know, I was I was working with Dave Pierce back then. Dave yeah. was another, you know, Dave was a hip hop DJ yeah. back then. You know, we were doing a lot of stuff out in New York then. Mm-hmm. So we were, you know, we were we were in New York more we were more than we were in London. Yeah. You know, we spent a lot of time in New York, and you know, we were talking to you know Sleeping Bag Records, Def Jam, you know, all the people that were were kind of breaking new music there. So you run DMCs. Eric B and Rakim, LL Cool J, Dougie Fresh, Beastie Boys, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff that was happening then we were playing on our station. So at the time you don't realize that you're breaking stuff. Our motivation was always to just break new music and, and and make the gigs happen. Yeah. You know, because it was very important that, that, that the gigs worked. And we also wanted to kind of stick it to Radio One a bit as well, because, you know, Radio One were very aloof at that time in their ivory tower. You know, Radio One really was going through a phase of being um, quite elite in the way, you know, in the the way that it worked and the the close relationship it had with the music industry back then. They were ignoring all this music. Yeah. Yet for, you know, and I I get it because London is like a different country to the rest of the UK. It's kind of almost a state unto itself. So what was happening musically in London was not what Radio One were doing. Radio One were broadcasting to the nation. And so people who were in the shires and in the, you know, in the towns still wanted to hear pop. Yeah. You know, they still wanted to hear that kind of pop music, you know, Simon Bates, Gary Davis, cheesy style of radio, which is not what we were. And it wasn't what London was. You know, we were doing something completely different. So we didn't know. Looking back on it, God, they were amazing times. You know, they, they were, you know, absolutely incredible. We were very lucky to be given the chance because we had quite a maverick manager at the radio station who, again, he, he also wanted to stick it to radio one too, (laughs) but he wanted to stick it to the BBC. So he was fantastic. (laughs) You know, he was a, he was a guy who was tipped to be a director general. He was a very high up guy, but um, through a series of mess ups when he was in news and current affairs, you know, he's a very serious news and current affairs guy who was the manager at Radio, radio London, but he was also quite a maverick. And um, anyway, he ended up being demoted from being the head of news and current affairs for the BBC to being the manager of Radio London. You know, they wanted to get him out of the way, put him to the side. But in putting him there, they put in a guy who didn't care. Yeah. You know, he he had no uh, worry about kind of skimming around the, the BBC charter to do things. And he had no worry about, the, you know, the manager of Radio One ringing Radio London up saying, you're not supposed to be playing this music. You know, that, that's our, you know, he, he would just tell them to sod off, you know, <laughs> just just go away. Let the, let, let the guys do it, you know. And so we were given a lot of creative freedom to do what we did. And it just shows that sometimes, you know, you need to work outside of the guidelines, um, you know, to find to find something new. So we were very lucky. Unfortunately, the station eventually got closed down. Yeah. And I think what, you know, our operation was part of the reason that it happened. But, you know, we survived, I think, two and a half years and brought a lot of new music. Um, and we and certainly we changed Radio One. Definitely. Because what kind of what happened was the people that were involved in, in Radio London, a lot of them went to KISS, which started in 1990. Nice FM and Radio London got closed down in late '88. So there was a kind of a year's hiatus where none of us had any... I went into television 
I actually, I actually went to television. I sort of thought that's it; it's all over for radio. Yeah. So for a full year, I, I, I left the business. Um, in fact, nearly two years because Kiss didn't come on till September '90, and then when Kiss came on, I kind of went back into it. And then a lot of those guys that went to Kiss ended up at Radio One in okay. 1994 when they had what they called the Night of the Long Knives, when a lot of people at Radio One were sacked, and this whole new generation of DJs came in. And so, so the roots of Radio One taking over dance yeah. go back to Radio London. That's kind of yeah, where definitely. the seeds were planted. But it took, but it took ten years yeah. to get through to network. And now Radio One are literally at the forefront of pushing music in from all cultures. It's it's kind of amazing what they do now. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I personally, I still think they miss quite a bit as well mm-hmm. i mean i i you know you, you know me well i i like trance and i like that kind of <laughs> melodic dance music everyone now is going what so but i like all of it. i i like my i like my techno i you know i like a lot of music but but trance has always been my thing and and whenever you see anything to do with radio one they just avoid they just avoid that genre because they see it as being quite cheesy a lot of people yeah. do but I don't think that's a reason to sort of completely avoid something that has, you know, I mean, usually the top DJs in the world. Oh, trance DJs. Back in the day. Used to all be Tiesto's, yeah. Van Dyke's, your Armin Van Buren's. Yeah, not so much now, although Tiesto, of course, changed his sound and stuff like that. But they, but they were ignoring it. So that was my little gripe with Radio 1. Yeah. You know, that, that, that there were certain areas. I think their all-time biggest essential mix was above and beyond. Yeah. You know, and 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 you you kind of do think, don't you see it? Don't you see it that there is other stuff out there as well? Above, above so and I'm beyond not... are a, a still huge, yeah, like huge yeah. on another level, but huge in a very quiet way. Yeah, that's, it's, that's it's strange because they can still like they do a lot of touring in America and they sell insane yeah. amount of tickets, and you it, you don't really that's hear right. about it. It's just there. But I've always thought I've always said that about trance is trance. Trance fans are so dedicated. If if you have they are. if you yeah. have a following in trance, they're gonna be with you until they're dead. Like they're literally yep. there their whole life. But it's a little different in house and techno. It's a little bit more like clickier. People grow out of it. People aren't into it so much. People stop listening to it. Definitely. It's like you have like that eighteen to twenty seven year old, and then you're like after that, everyone's having kids and getting married and buying houses and not listening to house or techno and trance that they're, they're still turning up. Yeah. I'll never forget the cream nights. Um, when we used to record the podcast. Is, it, no, well, that's right. I mean, I worked on those cream nights, yeah. as you know, I was very involved with cream for around about 10 years. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I remember 2003 with cream and Ibiza and every night for 16 weeks, it was Tiesto and Van Dyke. Yeah. And they, and they were the two biggest DJs in the world at the time. And I remember sort of working on this event. And, and you know, I, I only worked on that event because, you know, I knew the promoter of it very well. Yeah. And I and I loved the music. And they needed somebody to, to, to run the venue because the promoter wanted to be on the door all the night. He didn't want to be inside. How he is Mo? to keep his eye on the door. That was Mo. Yeah, how is he? You know? Have you spoken and to him recently? Have you spoke to Mo recently? Is what, sorry? Have you spoke to Mo recently? Oh, 
Mate, mate, you, you didn't hear. He died. No. He, he died, sadly, unfortunately. Yes, he did. Yeah, probably about four years ago now. Yeah, but he, he died in a swimming accident. I did not know Sorry that. to break the news, but yeah, it was it was about four years ago. And um, he was on holiday in, um, um, it was either India or Pakistan, it would have been Pakistan, uh, with his kids. And um, he got uh, caught by a, a wave and blown onto some rocks. Jeez. His head and that was it. I did not know that. Very, very sad. Yeah, oh, I miss I him greatly. Guy. I miss love him greatly because we, we worked together and, and were great mates as well yeah. for a long time. And he was a real character on the on the island as well. I mean, a, you know, huge loss. But yeah, I mean, going back to, you know, um, back to in the day, um, you know, he put on some great parties yeah, for Cream. And they and they were trans parties. But, you know, I mean, the, I, I, I just have to say as well, but the, the atmosphere in those parties was better than, you know, any yeah. other event that I'd been to. And a lot of it was to do with the energy. I think the uplifting feel of the music, you know, that that was always what I used to sort of say was the difference between, you know, a lot of house, uh, techno, tech house and trance. Trance was meant to make you feel high. Yeah. It was meant to make you feel good. The, the, the musical structure of the you know the, the chordal progressions and everything was 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 euphoric it you know the idea was was to was to take the plane into a liftoff mode not to just keep it running flat all the time yeah. and varying its speed a bit you know and and so the the atmosphere was was unrivaled and um and so you know i i i miss uh, you know, those nights, I, I, you know, and I miss the feel. And of course, you know, trance, like a lot of other music, goes in and out of fashion. Yeah. And it's interesting because when, when the, you know, we were, we were talking about, you know, EDM and, you know, the rise of the, you know, Getter and um, the Swedes and, you know, all that sort of stuff. When you look at the, the again, the, the, the musical structure of a lot of EDM music, it is trance. It's the same. They yeah, are yeah. trance chords, yeah, yeah, yeah. just done with different sounds. Yeah in a different time signature and with a different beat and with a lot more emphasis on the, on the kick, you know, on the bass drops, you know, I, I get all that, but, but, but the euphoria of that music is trance. It's still trance. Without question. It's kind of coming back popular again. It's more like it's people don't want to call it trance though. They want to call it like progression, progressive house or progressive tech. They don't just, they don't want to call it trance, but let's be honest. It's still, it's still fucking trance. At the end yeah, of the day. it is. Yeah, completely. Yeah, it, you know, of course it is, and and you know, and and it is coming back. You're right. I mean, you know, there's, I mean, a lot of trans producers just couldn't afford to carry on, no, because you know nobody was downloading the music, the gigs weren't being put on, and so a lot of those kind of Dutch and Belgian, um, you know, middle order producers, you know, they they went back to you know working in a brewery or taxi yeah. driving because because they just couldn't sustain the music yet when you listen to some of the music they were producing, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in my, you know, in my eye. Am- amnesia as a club. Definitely. Amnesia as a club was so good for that. Like cream was such a good night back in the day then. Like yeah. when it was more about the main room rather than the terrace, it was amnesia when it was built with the big platform and kind of, it was just perfect for trance. It was like that perfect yeah. kind of, relationship between music and club and people like the dj was high up like you'd be looking down onto the crowd the lasers were amazing amnesia was just that club that would just you wouldn't get that anywhere else in the world i don't think i don't think even on ibiza there wasn't any other 
clubs that could give you that trance feeling that you would get from amnesia no not at all and the sound system was kind of built for it too mm-hmm. you know i mean the, the the you know i was talking earlier about the professionalism of people the, the the one good thing about amnesia was that it was probably you know one of the two professional yeah. venues on the island during that era the other one being space yeah um you know the the, the guys there were great they understood the music um the, the you know they the, the the owner spent money on the sound system he yeah. understood that the sound system was important you couldn't just put in a lot of watts and hope for the best yeah you it had to be it had to be right so they had great sound systems in there and sometimes they would change them every season oh my you god know, I... they would rip out the old one that that would have cost you know maybe 50 to 100,000 euros and put in a new one i just remember the light you, guy you, yeah yeah i mean the the lighting guys were phenomenal as well they understood the music and they would never leave the lighting board you know they would sit at the lighting board all night and they they knew when the liftoff was coming you know they 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 knew they knew intuitively when breakdowns were happening they knew when um, you know, a, a, a track was going to take off. They understood that a DJ would run their set so that it would go up and peak and go yeah. down and go up and peak and go down. You know, so they they built the lighting structure to follow that so that they're, I mean, you know, things like um, uh, production effects were not big no, not back all. then. Not at all. The biggest thing you got was the, was the Megatron, you know, the dry ice yeah, machine, yeah, yeah. Which, which, which in Amnesia was massive. It was huge. You know, if it filled the room yeah. within about five seconds yeah. with CO2. And and to fill a room of that size, you needed a lot of pressure and a lot of, a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of CO2. And that was about as far as it went. There was no fireworks. There was no pyrotechnics. There was no claps and bangs and stuff like that. It was lighting and, and the, the Megatron, that was it. And so you had to work with what you had. Yeah. And those guys were fantastic. And they did it every night. I mean, that was the other thing. They did it every single night. They worked hard. That's why people only work for five months in Ibiza, because you 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 know, you do seven nights a week for five months, you know, so you need a break. You know, you've also you got the prep away. you've also got the prep um, in the day. Amnesia. You've also got the prep in the day. I know all the lighting. Sorry, guys. you broke up then. Sorry. Yeah. You, you also had all the prep in the day. Like everyone would forget that you, each each night has different branding. Each night has has yeah. different things. So you would people would be setting up in a day. I remember when we used to do recordings. We especially in Amnesia, a lot of the time we'd go and set up in the in the day and then come back the night. So you're you're working like a lot. You're not just working your like ten till six in the morning. You're working from like twelve in the afternoon, setting up and then going back there. And it, it's they're long days. Good fun though. Yeah, they are. They're they're very long days. I mean, most um, most clubs um, in Ibiza used to, you know, their production staff would come in around about four, five o'clock, five yeah. o'clock usually, because as you know, there's this kind of siesta time. Yeah, there as well. Not so much nowadays. I'm glad to say, but back then it was sacrosanct. You know, sort of two till four was siesta. Nobody worked, even if there was an emergency situation, nobody would come in. <laughs> Uh, so they used to come in at five o'clock and just switch everything on, make sure everything was working, check everything. And then they'd go home again and get a disco nap, as we yeah. used to call it, uh, get a disco nap in before coming in to do midnight till six. But it's interesting because as as time went on, 
I mean, again, you know, back then, the choice for a DJ was either, are you going to play on SL1200s or are you going to play on CDs? That was it. Then, then, you know, as time went on, you'd get five DJs on the bill and they all wanted different mixers and they all wanted different CD players. And so the, the, the prep time got bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. You know, so you would have to, you know, you'd have to start doing sound checks, you know, at uh, maybe one, two o'clock in the yeah. afternoon. So the working days actually got longer as time went on as well. Um, and it's good that we're starting to come towards a, a, a kind of more of a standardization again yeah, now yeah. where people sort of say the pioneer stuff's great. Just just do just that. that. And when we're doing broadcasting events, we have to be quite ruthless yeah. because it, it's like we are not changing the setup halfway through a live broadcast to 10 million people. Definitely. It's not happening, no. you know, so, so you need to use this setup, you know, it's like, Oh, I don't really like using it. It's like, well, can you use it or not? And if, if they can, it's like, well, please use it. Do us a favor because what's important here is not the 2000 people in front of you, it's the 10 million yeah. people listening. And and you and you have to sort of you know do a do a performance that sounds great on radio, not that that looks good here. Most people do get it. You get the the odd couple that that don't, but most people do get it. Yeah, that's amazing. So last last up, let's let's wrap this one up in a bit. But if your ideal night, I pretty I think I know the answer. But ideal night in Ibiza, what what's like if you could go back to that that night? where you're like, go into the club, what would it be? Uh, cream of amnesia, isn't it? I mean, it. You know, it. <laughs> talk about it. Um, I mean, I, I used to run a night as well um, called Euphoria, yeah. which was with, with, with Dave, Dave, with yeah. Dave Pierce, that was, you know, unashamedly commercial, but with a small C. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't big C commercial. Uh, it was based on a series of albums called um, called Euphoria, yeah. Euphoria CD collection, which was all trance, of course. Um, but you know, even though I was working on that and putting these events together for you know several years, um, I used to love those events too. Normally, by the time we got to about four o'clock in the morning, you could relax and 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 have a drink or two. Yeah, I mean, we we used to get given a hundred drinks tickets. That's how. <laughs> That's how great Ibiza was back in the day. You know, they, they would give you 100 drinks tickets. And the idea was, was that you would, you know, buy artists and contacts, you know, some, you know, some drinks, which you would. But you'd never go through 100. It just no. wouldn't happen. And a lot of the time, um, even back then, um, a lot of the DJs were, were not drinking that much. Yeah. You know, they, they wanted to get the set right and all that sort of stuff. So by four o'clock you'd find you've got about 50 drink tickets on you so you'd be like and and they weren't valid the day after so you're like okay i've got to start working on this now you know um but outside of that i think i think my top three would probably be cream in the early noughties yeah without question musically atmosphere venue everything you know and and no phones yeah. people didn't come there and hold up phones yeah or do anything on phones they went there purely for the music and the sound system you know all those things everything was just right the you know the 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 um it's like one of those things where the jigsaw puzzle comes together perfectly so cream was brilliant number two i'd probably go back to the 90s and think manumission in yeah. the 90s was just incredible yeah. you know that was um like you said, it wasn't about the music or the DJs. It was about the show and the experience. Um, and then 
No, I'm not going to choose my own events, obviously, uh, for number three. But I, I, I'd sort of say it's kind of a tie. I mean, We Love was amazing. Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, I used to, but but most of the time with We Love, I was working on it. But if you go back to space on Sundays, again in the late '90s, before I was working on that event properly, that was an incredible event too. Yeah. On on the Sunset Terrace, that that was just you know not to be missed. Um, so that would probably be my number three. That's amazing. It's really wild you bringing that up. How and kind of me thinking that like how much Apple changed the like the club industry, yeah, and how much like because you're you're mm-hmm. totally right. You can't obviously there's clubs that don't allow phones out and things like that, and they try and keep that out. But it's like the first thing people go to. And I don't yeah. know. If, I don't know if you've seen yeah, the Eric. It, it, it. I don't know if you've seen the Eric Prids epic shows. Um, but when you see videos of the shows, all you uh-huh. see is people just like putting their cameras up and filming it. And you're like, are you, can you not see how amazing this is? Why are you looking through this through your phone? Like, just can you not enjoy it? It's it's wild. Yeah. But then that goes back to yeah, it is. I mean, it, it it's go on. I think, I, I, I think it will change again. I, th- I think, I think you know, we're going through a particular era at the moment where people just want to post mm. their life um, online. And, you know, and I, I get it. You know, I'm, I'm not one of those people that sort of say, you know, oh, it was all so much better back in the day, even though it was. But, you know, <laughs> I, I don't go around saying that. It's just that, you know, it's just that things, you know, you know they develop. And, and just, you know, and the whole thing about progression is that, you know, things change. Yeah. It doesn't always change for the good. Yeah, totally. The thing. And sometimes it's quite cyclic. It can go from a really good place and then cycle into something that's not as good for a yeah. while and then cycle back into something that is good again. Yeah. And I think we've cycled into a place that is not so good. Yeah. But it, but it will cycle back again, in my opinion. Um, I just think that, you know, the, the, the times where people went to, a, to an event – because they love the music and the atmosphere will come back. Totally. I think a lot of the time people go to events now because they want to post it, yeah. that they were there. Yeah. And the only way that they can prove that they were there is to actually go. Yeah. So, so you do get this, this situation where, you know, the, the important thing for people is to get the picture or the video or the Instagram or, or whatever. And then they will post it and look for likes and, and look for people saying beautiful things about them and saying, Oh, you're so lucky. Oh, it's yeah. so great. You know, I think, I think that's what it is now, yeah. but I hope it will come back. But in a way that's up to the DJs to a great extent. They have to start making great music again. Yeah. And, and although some of the stuff that's coming out is okay, it's not like it was where, you know, the pressure <laughs> was to make great music. Mate, you sound like my dad. The pressure now. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to, get, you know, it's it's got to get back to, you know, it's it, yeah. I'm not putting it on the DJs. It's the industry as yeah. well. The industry's in a way got to focus on combining these two things because the phones aren't going away. No, they're, they're not going to magically disappear and everything is going to go back to how it was. But somehow the two have to coexist quite nicely. Um, I, yeah, and, and 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 make it much more um, about. Uh, about music and atmosphere i think capturing that atmosphere i think what's i think what's happened as well is that it's completely like our fault as djs is that it never used to truly really be about us it used to just be about the night like 
nights you used to yeah. be you used to get it used to be advertised as like a trance night or something like that. You knew like if you were going to cream, you're getting trance. You knew if you're going to we love, you're gonna get everything, but mostly house and techno. Um but now it's because of social media, it's all like DJs have turned into rock stars. And yeah. it's everyone wants to go and say that they've seen Steve Aoki, Will Clark, Carl Craig, yeah. if you know what I mean. They no matter what the yeah. music is, they probably know the name over what the music what the music they do and what the music they make and what the music they play. And I think it's part of I, I actually had a really good conversation with a mate yesterday. And I think this whole coronavirus time has been really interesting for our industry because club music doesn't really get streamed and club music because there's no clubs happening. And I think this is the time where some artists are going to be like, not, there's not going to be a career for them because they just make middle of the road club music. And then there's some artists that really want to push themselves and make really fucking good music. And I think during this time it's actually allowed people to like sit back and be like, no, I don't want to do what everyone else is doing. I don't want to sound like everyone else. I'm just making music. Like when you're DJing, when you're touring, you just make, you're just making music to just kind of, it's a business card, really. It's a, it's a, it's a business card to, to like get you booked. And mm. it's easy to go down that formulaic kind of vision as an artist and just like make music and just, just for the sake of it, because you have to. Whereas I think in times like this, you don't have to make music. You only make music because you absolutely love making music. And mm, and I think now is the time when there's going to be some artists that are just going to be pushing pushing their music to like another level. Because you get time to as well. You, you get, I was with, I had some sessions in London last week and I was talking to one of the engineers there and he, he was doing, he was writing music for a lot of DJs just purely because the DJs didn't have time. Mm-hmm. And and now they all have time, and now people can actually like be artists and not worry about the show, the next four shows that they've got tomorrow, starting tomorrow, and having to yeah. rush something and making mediocre music. I think I think it's going to change. Hopefully, anyway. Yeah, we'll have to see what happens to the whole sort of nighttime industry, really, because you know it, it, nobody really quite knows how long the the after effects from COVID are going to be. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, the the the, the kind of the, the the big D day on all this is when everybody's vaccinated and yeah. you know, and we start to move back to normality. But you know, behavioural patterns, isn't it? Psychologists or say that you know, if you're put into a different behaviour for four or five months, then it it sticks with you. Yeah. And behaviourally, you know, a lot of people may not go back tonight clubs again you know they may sort of say we found other things to do yeah yeah you know there's there's other ways of spending our time whether that's watching box sets or whether it's you know getting exercise or whatever you know people may not go to it in the same way that they did before we can only wait and see we can only speculate on it but but i think that everybody's going to have to raise their game definitely and not just go back to where we were and expect everything to just magically carry on again I think, you know, um, for the for the nighttime industry, which is, you know, is not just about DJs. You know, it's it's all about it's all about the experience. You know, yeah. it's all about the you know, it's about the venue. It's about the drinks. It's about the, the you know, the staff. It's about the headline. You know, there's so many things that make that experience now. Like I say, back in, 
you know, in the 90s, it, w- it was music. You know, yeah. you'd go to a venue because they were playing trance. You'd go to a venue because they were playing house or whatever it was. Yeah. So you, you, you kind of did, you almost didn't care about the venue in many yeah, ways. Yeah. And, and in many ways, you didn't actually care too much about the DJ because it was the, it was the brand of the night that carried it through. Um, so, you know, if you went to Gatecrash, you were going to get one particular thing. If you went to Subliminal, you knew you were going to get something yeah, else. If definitely. you went to Pure Passion, you knew what you were going to get for that. You know, in a way, the, the DJs were almost a, an afterthought. Mm-hmm. Head Candy being the perfect yeah. example. You know, if, if you went to a Head Candy night, you knew exactly what you was going to get, but you'd never heard yeah, of yeah. any of the DJs that were playing. But it was a successful night. Whereas what started to happen after a while, like you say, is that the DJ became the focus of attention. Yeah. And and so then it would sort of become DJ, DJ, DJ um, at whatever, yeah. you know. And so some things, lot, you know, look at Head Candy now. Head Candy is almost nothing now nothing, yeah. because it, it didn't have any star DJs. So when we get back eventually, and, you know, and we will, if, if you believe everything that we, we read about, I think there's going to have to be some... Uh, creative thinking totally. and some creative production from the artists to get people back into it again totally. because they're not want they're not going to want to go back to where it was yeah they're no, going to need something new to entice them i totally agree and i think just as a as a dj as a producer i i think it's really it's a really exciting time to actually do something different um and kind of just change change it up because it was it was getting stagnant it was like why do you want to just like even it's amazing. I'm super lucky to be in a position that I'm that I'm in. But I had like some people that would see me like ten times in one year, and I'm like, why? <laughs> like although although I, I get yeah, yeah. although I get it, but I'm like, I I I'm bringing you different music each time. Yes, but the venues that you're seeing me in aren't anything different. They're they're not. Yeah, it's not. I'm I'm not bringing you like special production i'm not like the venues aren't up in their game the venues are staying the same every weekend it's just they're just changing the music um but i think you're right i think you're right i think it is time for things to change um i don't know what it is but it's going to be interesting it's going to be interesting to see what happens in ibiza next year because i I think ibiza is still sort of seen as the global clubbing capital totally um and 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 can lead by example so I, I, I sort of hope that a lot of people who are still, you know, kind of over there and, you know, are at the creative forefront now of putting on the events and um, developing venues and, and you know, um, strategizing brands and all that kind of thing. I hope that they are kind of in creative thinking mode as to what we do next year yeah. rather than sort of going back to where we were because I think there'll be a certain amount of space for going back to where we were but not not a lot. I think I think stuff has to change, totally. and and this also goes through to you know um, in Ibiza's case, you know the councils as well. Yeah, you know the the politicians, and you know they all have to kind of decide what they want. Um, you know, if they want a different type of tourist, um, if they want different types of venues, if yeah. they want to change the operating hours and the licensing laws, you know, all these kinds of things are all integral to the scene. They're all very important, and I, and it's not just people at the sharp end that are affected by you know everything that's happening now with the pandemic it's it's also the people who you know make the scene happen totally and and a lot of the time these, these people can be quite boring people yeah so you know like i say politicians um you know marketing people all the rest of it i just hope that 
people are thinking no, I agree. rather than taking a year off and sort of waiting for this all go to all go away and then pick up business as usual. I think it's really, I think it's really interesting in Ibiza as well. Or I think maybe maybe this will actually kind of be a bit of an more of an eye opener to the politicians to the kind of the people behind the scenes that we don't see that we're always fighting against if you know what I mean. Maybe this is as like okay, like this scene generated a shitload of money for like let's say for instance Ibiza like the amount of taxes that they're not going to be earning this year is going to be obscene mm. obscene um yep. and yep. the same for the rest of the world really like the nightlife industry not just clubs like theaters everything brings in so so much but yet yep. there's always that battle between there's that red tape that you're always having to battle against it's like if if we go over an extra hour, why, like you 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 get fined, like you, yeah, the the, poli- right. the police come and shut you down, and it's that's like right. oh come on, like you're you're actually by 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 putting restrictions on people, you're you're actually stopping creativity, and it goes back to like your Radio London days, you just kind of did it and you got mm. away with it, and it was great whilst you did it but look what look at the after effects of what happened like look at look at the knock-on effect of what that had on radio whereas ibiza was exactly the same back 10 10 15 years ago even when when i was there you could see the knock-on effect and then when the councils came in and started closing clubs down earlier then the west end closed down at 3 a.m or something like that and you're just like this is just stopping people just to evolve culturally yeah yeah well that's it i mean you know everybody's after a slice of the cake really and um you know councils started bringing in restrictions because of pressure from local people but also because you know they they could be generating well not generating but um acquiring yeah a lot of revenue yeah uh, that they weren't acquiring before yeah because um, you know, there's there's a huge amount of um, money that's generated in an industry that went as kind of crazy and overboard as that. I mean, yeah. where else would you go in the world and pay, you know, twenty euros for a cocktail that's yeah. two thirds ice? You know, yeah. you, you do it because <laughs> you're in a beater and that's what you do. Yeah. Um, and you know, so in a way, my my worry about that side of it is that once we come out of this, whenever it will be, is that I think people are going to be much more careful with money and with spending and the kind of the, you know, the frivolity of spending, you know, 20 euros on a cocktail or, you know, 250 euros on a table for two in a music venue with a DJ you've never heard of, I think might go away and that people will be just a lot more selective. And and I think one of the big disposable um, income bins if if i can put it that way of the last decade has been the nighttime industry totally. so that's bars that's music venues um entertainment you know people with disposable income that's that's where yeah. they were going to spend it yeah whereas now you know we're, we're moving into a you know um globally a new era of possibly high unemployment not just because of uh, covid but because of things like ai and automation yeah. stuff like that and i think people you know, I, I almost kind of think we've gone through a bit of a golden age where, you know, credit 
and spending was not a worry because tomorrow was always going to be another golden day. Yeah, yeah. And I think what this this particular time has brought round to people is that, you know, well, tomorrow might not be another day. Totally. You know, back at, you know, I'm so old that I can remember people <laughs> saying, you know, expressions like we need to save for a rainy day. Yeah. And that that's a, that's an expression that's disappeared from modern yeah, culture yeah. because people were always on about spending. You know, yeah. we've been in a, we've been in an environment for the last two decades of spending money. Yeah. And I think this because it's global, it's not just a particular country or a particular region that's got hit by this because this is global and that people, you know, have been plunged into. I mean, in the UK, they've not been plunged into it yet, but they will be. We you know, will be, this, yeah. this, this this shock is coming. You know, yeah. it's still. It's still a kind of a wave in the distance, but it's but it's coming, yeah. And we're going to have an economic shock, and a, a shock. And I think, you know, sadly, this time next year, people might not have the disposable income anymore to yeah. spend in nightclubs and music venues and on, you know, holidays in Ibiza where you blow two thousand euros. Yeah, I think people are just going to be. They're just going to think a little bit more. I hope. Uh, I really, I really hope that they do do that because, like, I think it's a massive learning curve. I know it's been a learning learning curve for a lot of my mates and and myself, of course. But it's that living within your means, and especially in America, um, and this is something that I've experienced in America and living in America and being being English, coming from England, and going to America. Like you can't do anything in America if you don't have a credit card. If you if you don't have credit, right. you can't get anything. You can't. And sure. there's that constant like be the best spend the most money show off your money like and i think a lot of it is like no you don't have to like you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow no and that's right I, I i think people have realized that you know shit happens yeah and shit can sometimes be very big and it can yeah. be life-changing and when you think you know this 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 pandemic was was very very quick to happen yeah you know the end of march we were all ah. laughing at the beginning it. of april we were all fucking hell what's <laughs> happened you know and and here we are we're in august and we're all still going what's happening yeah you know and 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 this could go on for quite a while yet you know we we don't know you know yeah. we're all assuming that 2021 it's all going to bounce back i hope it will and i feel it will but it might not and that and that's the uncertainty what what this era this this covid era as it will be yeah. called for the next 100 years has brought in is that you know it, it the sun doesn't always shine no. and that there's a, there's a there's a risk element to your life in lots of ways that you can't control yeah and that you know things like like i say my parents taught me which is you need to save for a rainy day yeah and and it's like well what does that mean and it's like well you know it, it's not always good yeah. these were generations that went through wars went through and war, yeah. real austerity and real depression and yeah. you know th- so they knew that things yeah. could happen and we've just been lucky to have an era of about sort of 40 years where you know nothing's happened yeah. you know no- nothing's gone wrong yeah uh, and now something's gone wrong and so people realize that stuff can go wrong. Totally, and so, yeah. so I, I think that, you know, my worry is that, is that the leisure industries of all types that don't offer good value, yeah. and this is the key now to the future, I don't think you'll have nightclubs in Ibiza being able to charge 50 and 60 euros to go and walk in the venue yeah. and then have the privilege of paying four times the price for a drink yeah. 
um, and 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 treated like shit as well yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah totally. The, yeah. The, these things are going to have to change. And I think that could be good for our industry, but there's no doubt there's going to be casualties as well. Of course. But of hopefully course. the people that are left at the end of it and the people that are still going, which will be a smaller scene and a smaller industry, will be getting better value, more yeah. bang for their buck, if you like. They'll be getting better value from the venues and hopefully a more enjoyable experience overall. Because I think we've all kind of, it's the boiling frog syndrome. You've heard the yeah, boiling yeah. frog syndrome. Yeah. You know, you you don't notice it until yeah. it's all gone horribly wrong. Yeah. And I think in many ways in Ibiza, it had all kind of gone wrong in many ways. People were almost bankrupting themselves yeah. to go and have a good experience. It shouldn't be like no, that. It shouldn't. You should be able to have a good experience at not some outrageous amount of money to, yeah. to do it. And hopefully that's where a beast will start to move in the future. I think I think also it's 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 about the whole industry not being greedy. And I think that's that is yeah. the, like from from the venues, from the DJs, from the managers, from the agents, from everything to be like yep. okay guys, like we we can't carry on like this. Like yeah. everyone has to get paid less, which means that everyone that goes pays less to go and everyone experiences it for a lot less money and has a lot more fun and doesn't wake up the next morning and looks at their bank account and being like, fuck, what did I do last night? Yeah, um, that's right. Which we've all done that. If you know what I mean, we've, we've all done that. But I think, I think it's like a collective that the industry has to come together and be like, okay, this is how we're doing it now. And we're making this purely about the customers that come into our shows and how can we make yeah. the customers want to come back? How can we give them an experience? And the first thing is by making it affordable yeah. and make, That's right. making good bang for your buck, really. I, I've, always, I've always wanted that. And it's, it's, it, it, we always had that in England. Like you used to, go to be able to go to a nightclub for five quid and, mm-hmm. and like have the best night of your life. Um, yeah. And then all of a sudden it became 20 quid. Yeah. And you're like, well, why? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing changed. No. You know, in, in fact, in fact, everything looks tired. Yeah. And I'm paying more to get in. And and it was like that in Ibiza too. You know, there was a, there was a lot of venues that didn't spend any money on the venue. Um, but in, in some ways there was a bit of sympathy because I remember from running a venue, my DJ bill for the week um, probably trebled in the space of two years. Yeah. Just to just to get DJs and that and you know and and this is the thing you know any industry that that becomes attractive to to what I call the money people yeah is is going to suffer in the long run totally so what started to happen in the music industry was we started to get you know we DJs used to always have managers yeah but the managers were always sort of you know quiet you know laid back people and yeah. just kind of wanted the best for their artists but they weren't particularly greedy yeah. they just wanted to structure a career. But then what do we get? We got agents. Yeah. And once you start getting agents coming in, you've got good agents and you've got bad agents. But the one thing that agents have in common is that they're always going to try and hit you for the biggest bill they think they can get away with. Yeah. And so that is where things start to get monetized. And, and if DJs start to cost more, then admission prices have to go up. Yeah. And then you know some of the people that work for the club might get laid off because you can't afford the salary bill anymore. Yeah. And you know what I mean? There's, the, there's, the, there's people that come into the industry that are not there 
because of music. They're there because they can make a buck. Totally. Yeah. And, yeah. When, and when this industry is screwed over, they'll go into pottery yeah. or they'll go into selling cars. Yeah. Yeah. The, these, these, the, you know, this, and I, I've got nothing against them. No, totally. It's just that they exist. Yeah. They exist. And they will move from industry to industry. And I think over the last 10 years, they've been in our industry. Yeah. And I remember the growth of agents starting to happen around about 2005, 2006. Yeah. That's where it all started to happen. From where I used to have relationships with DJs directly to, you know, oh, you need to talk to my agent. Yeah. You know, you have to talk to my agent. And then I'd be saying things to the agent and sort of saying, well, Last year, you know, for example, you only charge a thousand euros. Why has it gone to two thousand? Ah, oh, well, they're in demand, and yeah. you know, and 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 the agents would know how far they could take you. Yeah, yeah. And so, like I say, I've got nothing against it. It's just a factor of what happens in all these industries where money people come in. Yeah, you know, you you, you could play them a trans track and a piece of tech house and say, identify those tracks. Which one is trans? Which one is tech house? And like. Oh, I don't know. I'm a clue. I'm a clue, mate. They're not there for the music. They're certainly not interested in music. And then you could put up, um, you know, uh, talk about something that, you know, the evolution of music from, you know, 10 years before. They won't have a clue. Yeah. You know, I was selling cars back then. I don't know. You know, I, I haven't a clue. So so every industry gets its money people. Definitely. And we've had a lot of money people around yeah. our industry for the last decade or so. No bad thing. You know, a lot of people have done well out of it. Fine. But I just hope that they don't stay forever. I hope that we can go back to a scenario where the people that are booking gigs and the people that are managing DJs and venues and all that sort of stuff want to make a reasonable buck. Yeah. But they don't want to screw everybody at the same time. I, that, I totally agree. That would be my wish. I totally agree. that, And I like that I've had many situations where like I've, played a show and it's done extremely well i had it on my last tour actually we we did a show somewhere i don't want to mention it but where and my manager used to be an agent we used to be like one of the biggest agents in america um and it's funny how he was like it's, it's wild this because i've booked artists in this venue for five times the amount you earn tonight and they didn't sell that many tickets and yeah and and it's i think that's the thing is like there's venues that look at a name and value this name for some reason there's a name and they have to value it because they're told that they have to but then there's other names that they don't necessarily value as much but it's worth the same but yeah bigger name they won't make that much money on that night, but the smaller yep. name, they're going to make a shitload of money and they're not yep. necessarily going to spread that between anyone else. It's just how it works. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, I, th- yeah. I think, I think for me speaking to a lot of promoter mates and things like that, I think it's just, it just needs to go kind of go back to how it used to be with like rock bands or how it still is with bands where you get a door split and you get yeah. a bar split. And if 2000 people come to your venue, you all take your expenses out of it and then you split what what comes up and you will work yep. out how much is sold at the bar and everyone's honest and no one's been hiding or anything no one's doing anything dodgy and this is how much the bar made you get your 10% you get your 5% this is how much the door made this is you get 40% and i think that way it creates so much it creates 
better relationships for everyone, but it also makes the artists become better artists because they have to perform. And, you, and they have to market. They have to. They have to. Yep. And and you have to yep. you have to be I'm sorry, but we live in a day and age where you're not just a producer and you're not just a DJ. You're not just a promoter. You're everything. Like I market more than a lot of people do. If you know what I mean, I spend a lot more time, me and my team, we spend so much time talking about how do we, how are we going to market this? How are we going to do this? How are we going to launch it? And I've got a lot of friends that do exactly the same. And I think when you like, if you're working with a promoter and two of you are marketing together, it's better than one of you. And, and then everyone succeeds. And I think that it's just about coming together and not looking at the artist, at the agent, at the manager, at the venue as your enemy. Because that happens so much. So many, so many people are like, oh, fuck this venue or fuck this promoter. Like, let's just go and get some money and let's crack on. It's like, no, like we want to make this. At the end of the day, you forget what it, what we're doing it for. We're doing it for the music and we're doing it to entertain people. Fucking just got to entertain people. Well, that, I mean, you took the words out of my mouth in a way because I remember, you know, when I first started doing events, we would do things like door splits and stuff. And even even into, you know, into Ibiza, you know, we we would, you know, we might even give a, um, uh, an artist one of the bars yeah. in the venue, you know, something like that. And then when when the kind of the more formalized agreement started to come in through agents and and um you know uh, management companies it, it brought in an element of distrust because yeah. you know you you'd sort of say well normally what we do is to is to give the the dj a split of the door so you know if they pull three thousand people they're going to walk away with a lot of money yeah if you know if they pull 300 they're, they're going to think oh i need to work harder yeah and and the agents would sort of say, well, how do we know you're being honest? Yeah. So they they would start to bring in this element of distrust. Yeah. Between between the the artist and the venue, which ultimately is the relationship that matters. Yeah. You know, whoever runs the venue will book the artist. But then you also get you know agents when you go to a higher level. If I wanted to put on a lineup that that you know was was a musically good lineup. And um, an attractive lineup from in terms of, you know, I'd know each DJ on the lineup would would, you know, would sell their, um, you know, do their marketing in advance or they had a good record out at the time or they they had a good track record. I might want to book three DJs, pay whatever money it was to get those DJs and I'd, I'd be happy. But in, when agencies started coming in and, and signing up lots of artists, then the agents would sort of say, well, we'll only do it. Yeah. As long as you don't book that artist. Yeah. So you you have to book our artists. Yeah. So then they started compromising my ability as a promoter or venue manager to put the lineup on that I wanted. Yeah. And I'd be putting on artists that, that, that an agency or a management group were trying to promote. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, just for an example, say, say I, I wanted to book um, Paul Van Dyke then Paul Van Dyke's management and, and and because Paul more or less manages himself, then, you know, this is not a real example, yeah. but you know, his management company might sort of say, well, we want you to put two more bandit artists yeah. on, not have Tiesto. Yeah. 
So, you know, the, the lineups that we had in 2003 might not be possible now yeah. because of people who've got nothing to do with the industry in that pure sense of I know the music, I know the venue, and I know the DJs. And you what know your crowd. You know your crowd. Money people. You know your you exactly. know your audience more than any you know your audience better than than the DJs to a certain extent because the DJs are just yep. turning up unless you're a resident like you know everything and and I think that's that's it's in an interesting thing that it's I think it's just about kind of taking it back to the the roots side of thing and don't get me wrong there's still going to be a lot more money in it than there was back in the day yeah. There's still a there's, yeah. people have a lot more money even during coronavirus even after coronavirus people still have a lot more money but it's it's about I think it's just about bringing that honesty back to the to what it to what we started really well let's just hope you know it's going to make people work harder yeah um, to produce to produce something that's better than it was before because totally. I think that's the only way we're going to start getting people back is to is to kind of raise the bar a little bit. Yeah. And, um, you know, put on a better show, um, provide a better experience um, for less money. Because although not everybody thinks of the cost of something, um, I think people are going to start becoming more aware of the value of something. And, um, and, yeah, and, you know, I hope it goes that way because, uh, you know, I'd love to see the industry come back. Yeah, man. But I I don't think it's going to be a walkover. I think it's going to be a struggle. I agree to get it back. So, you know, and, you know, and going back to what we were saying earlier, I think, you know, it's not just the industry, it's, you know, radio stations, streaming services are all going to have their part to play in this as well. Totally. Because, you know, without people who are the, if you like the talent in the, in the nighttime industry, getting their, um, you know, getting their creativity out to a wide, wide audience, then people aren't going to come back. There's a lot of people that need to get involved in this, not not probably in a coordinated way, but in a way that's just intuitive. Yeah. People are going to have to know that if I want people to download tracks off my site, then there's going to have to be an industry out there to do it. Because yeah. I'd love to see the figures for things like, you know, Spotify and Apple Music and, and see what's been happening to downloads over the last six months. Be interested to see if they've gone down or up. I don't know. They've, but, they've gone know, down in, I think, in, I think in dance one, music. They've gone down yeah. about twenty percent. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, well, again, you know, intuitively, I thought that might yeah. be the case that you know people would start to lose interest yeah. in it because they're not doing it. Yeah, exactly. They're not doing yeah, it anymore. Yeah, yeah. and um, and and so you know, that's 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 you know, I could see us looking back on this in twenty years' time and sort of going, "That's what yeah. killed it. It was that era that killed it, and it didn't have to kill it. It it could have been brought back to life." Yeah. But it's like you know, it's it it is it is kind of like bringing it back to life because you know when some when something's injured so badly, you've got to you, you've got to take care of it, yeah, totally. and recuperate totally. and make it happen again. So, yeah, let's hope so, eh? Let's hope so, right, mate? We've just done an hour and fifty four minutes. That was that that's was, long enough, I think. That's long enough. Let's wrap <laughs> this one up, dude. Uh, Tom, thank you so much, man. It has been a pleasure to catch up. We could probably talk oh, all it's day been long. Great, mate. It's, it's been great talking about the days. Yeah, and and good to see you again, mate. You as too, well. mate. Um, come down. My parents say hi as well, so they send their love. Um, and let's catch oh, up soon. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, I will. I will. Yeah, once um, once things get a, a little more kind of straightened out, I'll yeah. definitely do it. Yeah, do yeah. It. And then, and then I might even come see you at a gig in America. You Why not? Know. Why not? In 10 years' time. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. See you soon, mate. Keep safe. See you soon. Bye. Take, Take it up. easy.
See you soon. That is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I I could talk to that guy all day long. Um, there's so many stories we'd missed out as well. There's just literally, we could probably do like a whole series of just Ibiza stories of what we used to kind of get up to. Um, amazing times. But yeah, thank you to everybody that's listened. Thank you for Tom for being on here. If you like the show, uh, please share it, send it to anyone if you fancy. Um, But yeah, keep safe and I'll see you soon.